welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of St. Elbow's Fire, starring Rob Lowe, Demi Moore, Emilio Estevez, Ali Sheedy, Judd Nelson, Mayor Winningham, Andrew McCarthy, Andy McDowell, and Martin Balsam. Directed by Joel Schumacher. Released in 1985 on a budget of $10 million, grossed $37.8 million at the box office. To say this was met with criticism is understating how much people hate this movie nick how in the world did you pick out saint elmo's fire were you even alive in 1985 man i was too so i was (laughs) i i I was a baby in motion as opposed to a man in motion (laughs) but um it's Okay, I'm just going to be honest. I, I'm a big John Hughes fan. I love John Hughes movies like, you know, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. We're coming up to, you know, when we're recording this, we're coming up to Thanksgiving. So that's always uh, that's something that I watch. I like Home Alone. I like, you know, The Breakfast Club. I like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I really enjoy those movies. So what do you normally relate to? I mean, even like Uncle Buck is an amazing movie. But when you relate to John Hughes movies, especially like the ones like Pretty in Pink and everything like that, you talk about the Brat Pack. Yeah. And the Brat Pack, this is like kind of known as like the Brat Pack movie because you got all of them, you know, the majority of them in there, like 80% of them in there. You know, you got like Judd Nelson, Ali Sheedy, uh, Andrew McCarthy, Rob Lowe, you know. Yeah, there's a few of them missing, like, you know, Molly Ringwald and all that stuff like that. But you got Emilio Estevez. And it's one that I've always heard thrown in there as like, it's not John Hughes, but it's of the time and it's featuring these people. And we all know the song, you know, St. Almost Fire, Man in Motion. I mean, that's a song that's kind of a guilty pleasure, I think, probably to most of us, including myself. But it's a, it's a song that I've known, and it usually pops up on Pandora or something when I listen to my 80s mix. So I had saw that this was on Prime Video, and I had no idea what this movie was about. I'm like, is it about, like, firefighters or... Like, what, what is this about? So I told you, I'm like, hey, Jay, I'm like, this movie, like St. Elmo's Fire is on Prime. I'm like, have you watched it? And you're like, no. And I'm like, okay, why don't we do this? Why don't we do like a little bit of an 80s throwback here and kind of talk, you know, go, go back and watch this. And to be honest with you, I don't even know what I watched. And I'm kind of hoping that maybe as we get into this, you can kind of clear it up. I've seen a lot of weird movies and movies that I don't understand. I don't even know what the point of this movie is, but. I digress. I'll go on to you, Jay. What, do you, what did you know about this movie? <laughs> I I had seen this at some point in my life, man. Obviously, I did not see it in 1985. I was, uh, what, nine years old or eight years old when this came out. This was not what I was watching. I was watching Back to the Future and things like that. But I was aware of this movie because just like you, I had always heard, you know, this is a Brat Pack movie. This is the Brat Pack adult movie or whatever, because the rest of them are kind of teenage movies. I think it's funny that The Breakfast Club comes out early earlier in 1985 starring Ali Sheedy, Judd Nelson and Emilio Estevez as high school students. And then seven months later, they're in another movie that they're all playing like out of college people and nothing about them has changed at all. Except like Judd Nelson got a haircut and that, that's it. Every, everything else is the same. And apparently 
according to Joel Schumacher, Chidi Estevez and Nelson got hired because the studio was convinced by John Hughes that yes, you should hire them. Now the Schumacher wanted them, but he was trying to, he didn't have enough clout at the time to really kind of go, no, I want these people, not these people. He had, you know, got everybody else at that point. He got Rob Lowe. He got Demi Moore um, because Rob Lowe like went through all this crazy audition stuff. He saw Demi Moore walking out a hallway at an agent's office and it happened to be something she was auditioning for. It's like one of her first things. Um, and he got Andy McDowell and uh, Andrew McCarthy and Mayor Winningham, who at the time had like done a ton of television. McCarthy was a, was a bonafide star, but getting Estevez, Sheedy and Nelson, the, the breakfast club crew, if you will, came because John Hughes convinced Columbia pictures. Yes. You should let these people do this movie. They can play these parts. If you've mm-hmm. seen breakfast club, which, which had you know, amazing critical acclaim and well-deserved and had made a ton of money. So Columbia back to this, and this is a year of like Columbia disappointments. It's why Columbia Pictures doesn't exist anymore. It's because they took chances on movies that just didn't work out. Now, one of these in this pile I'm about to mention is a really good one. It's called Silverado. I love that movie. It's a great ensemble Western, but in 1985, we just weren't ready for that anymore. Then they did a movie called- That's not about a Chevy truck? Come on. That is not about a Chevy truck. Um, (laughs) They uh, did a movie called The Bride, which is kind of a Bride of Frankenstein type thing, if memory serves right. It's awful. And then they did Perfect, which is John Travolta and James. Jamie Lee Curtis as aerobics instructors thrusting at the screen for 90 minutes. So it's we've awful. all seen the gifts on that. You've seen so. the gift. Yes. So, but that's all that is remembered from this. I knew of this, maybe my older brother, again, this is kind of his age group of people. I mean, he graduated high school in 1989. This was the people he looked up to. These were his little friends. You know, this was the kind of thing he would go and see. So I think I ended up seeing this because I know he saw it in theaters or something. And then he ended up renting it once and i i barely paid attention to it i had no memory what this was about in fact i kind of conflated what i thought this movie was about nick with a robert downey jr movie with i think andrew mccarthy's in it called uh less than zero uh this movie is not that and that's a totally different discussion for another day the only other thing i knew about this was that theme song and you can think that earworm that that is because of the guy that co-wrote it and produced it and did all the music here david foster who is the reason we have all the great eight ballads from movies that you love like Karate Kid 2, Glory of Love and pretty much Chicago's entire 80s run is because of him um, and he's done pop songs for decades now and it, it's just it's just one of those guys who knows how to know how to write a tune that you can remember and works. And John Parr, the guy that co-wrote it and sang it, the Canadian singer wrote it about a para Olympian named Rick Hansen, <laughs> which cool. is why the lines about all I need are these wheels. He's talking about the guy's wheelchair. Um, he, he did not know what this movie's about. And when he saw it, he was horrified that this song got used like this because he thinks this movie's terrible. And we'll get into why maybe in a little bit, but it is, it's supposed to be this inspirational song about this para Olympian that then got turned into this, 80s yuppie hell <laughs> movie where there's no one you can like in this movie and I, but yeah as far as background with this man not not hardly any but when you pitched it i was like you know what we're coming up here on the end of the year i mean like i said we're recording this a little bit before thanksgiving this is coming out at the beginning of december we're about to drop a you know big new stuff in december and we've got all kinds of stuff eh, let's do something a little offbeat i mean we just did a bunch of horror movies in october we've even done a couple in november let's do something a little different i'm always down for eight cheese and to go back and revisit it and not revisit it with 2020 lenses because i think if you put today's mentality or sensibilities and try to watch this movie you completely miss what it was about and you don't understand the time and you can't look at things the way that we do now from the way these people lived then because it's not it's not the same world even close 
yeah, well, through like three wars since this happened. And, and that that's what makes this so much fun to go back and watch these people and also watch all these actors when they're in their 20s. I mean, Rob Lowe's 19 in this movie. I think the oldest one was Mayor Winningham. She had a couple of kids at this point. She was in her mid 20s, but she still looked like she was 22. Yeah. And speaking of like sensibilities from what I know and what I go from what my wife says, I have none. So I can't really bring anything <laughs> to the table here when it comes to that. And when we talk about horror movies, I think we'll get into pretty much how horrific this is on many different levels, but <laughs> I don't, you want to hit us with a plot summary there, Jay? Yeah. Let me, let me try to break down um, what I call welcome to eighties yuppie hell. The bunch of 20 something recent college grads circle the 1980s, trying to find their places in the world. There's Kirby Emilio Estevez, who is a graduate and he's working as a waiter while he's working his way through law school. There's Kevin Andrew McCarthy, who's a moody newspaper writer who, you know, spurns the advances of the wild jewels Demi Moore, who lives way beyond her means in spite of the fact that she's got a job in international banking and is a rich girl. There's Alec Jed Nelson, an aspiring political worker who is desperate to marry his girlfriend, Leslie, who we're told is an architect, but you would never know it because the only thing we know about her, is she's afraid of that long-term commitment. And then there's Wendy, the quiet girl who works as a social worker and is still living at home with dad until he can get her married off. Um, very you know, old sensibilities and in love with the rocker, Billy Roblo, who plays a saxed up or a coked up saxophone player, uh, trying to juggle roles as a get this husband, dad, and party meister. Mm, not a good combination. So as each chases his or her dreams and avoids responsibility, we see Billy's insecurities about being a young father and a husband come to light. Alex drive to succeed and to be quote normal and maybe work his way up the political ladder, betray his own convictions. Wendy tries to shrug off her youthful ways while still remaining idealistic. Kirby chases a flame from his freshman year. Who's older. It's a young doctor played by Annie McDowell uh, to ridiculous measures, even chasing her through the snow. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Kevin deals with his cynicism while hiding his true feelings for Leslie and chain smoking. Uh, Leslie confronts Alec about his cheating and he thinks Kevin ratted him out for it. Uh, Billy's immaturity finally catches up to him as his wife, Felicia, has finally had enough and says bye to him instead of the other way around. Uh, things are further complicated when Alec finds Kevin and Leslie together after a one-night stand of revenge sex for Leslie and where Kevin thinks something else has happened to him. It all comes to head, though, when Jules, who was recently fired and has been hiding in, is losing all of her possessions due to foreclosure, attempts to end her life by uh, sitting out on her balcony in just a t-shirt, freezing to death, but it's not snowing. I don't, whatever. Uh, ultimately, uh, the group goes in there and Billy is able to coax her as they share struggles about life, uh, something that the rest of the group overhears. Then Billy decides that he is going to leave for New York. His wife has found another man. They, you know, he's moved on from that conveniently. And the rest of the group decides uh, to wish him well at the bus stop. And then they decide to meet for brunch at a more quote adult place uh, and, and get away from the kids as credits roll. And that's the plot of the movie. You asked me what this movie's about, Nick. It's about the struggle of being in your twenties and you're supposed to be an adult. Now you've graduated from college, your marriage, you got a family starting, you know, all those things, those markers in life. Right. But you still don't know what the hell you want out of life. And, you know, this movie gets banged on for like these horrible people that Joel Schumacher created to tell that story. But that's a story as old as time, the coming of age still in your twenties. It is, it is. But when I look at like other coming of age movies and you know, the characters there, 
there's usually one that you can kind of root for. <laughs> and, you know, as you brought up the criticism of this movie is that there is not a likable person here. And I mean, I, I kind of like Andrew McCarthy's character to a point. I think he's kind of like, you know, we all had kind of a front like that. who was kind of the one that, you know, kind of stuck in the background and really didn't, you know, do really didn't say much, didn't do much, but yeah, there's so many guys in here. It's just kind of like, you're all awful. I mean, right away, I look at like this movie and like Judd Nelson's character, like, wow, like he is a complete and utter douchebag throughout this entire movie. <laughs> like there is no redeeming factor to this guy at all. I mean, yeah. you see right there, I mean, he cheats on his girlfriend, you know, or his, you know, hopefully fiance and, you know, God, it's just, there's so much weird stuff in this movie, but yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing is like, there's really not a character in here where I can really root for them to succeed in the end i just kind of sit back and i'm like you guys are all kind of awful people and you know <laughs> may maybe something like tragic needs to happen to kind of make you guys grow up and you know i look at myself and like you know i'm 36 right now so this was you know 10 years you know removed from that point in my life but at note i mean I, I was a pretty young father and everything like that being a, a dad at 23 but at the same time i'm like man i don't even think i was this bad when i was like 17 <laughs> And I'm like, man, these guys are just, I, I, I don't know. I still, I'm like, I appreciate the plot summary and I kind of understand what happened here. I still just don't know what the point is of this movie. So, well, I, I think the way to, to talk about this one, rather than scene by scene is to kind of look at the movie through each character's experiences. And you say, if there's anybody we're supposed to root for, it could be Kevin because Andrew McCarthy, I think gets the most screen time and lines of anybody in this. But if there's anybody that like is still the good guy in this, it's Kirby and it's because he's still kind of playful and youthful and, you know, bless his heart. Milo Estevez is, is a short little guy and he's always kind of had that spunky, you know, thing. And the thing is, is when you watch him and you see him actually, when he kind of chews his teeth into a little bit of some of this stuff, you see his father come out in him so much. Like he is so much Martin Sheen in him. It is unreal. Like the face and he can get the voice right and all the, all this stuff. And he, you know, he went on to do some pretty good dramatic stuff and now produces and directs a good bit in, in his own right. But he's the one that still has like the youthful exuberance and he's still kind of holding on to some ideals and he's got the unrequited love. I mean, he's got this crush on Andy McDowell who will tell you to this day, this movie rescued her career. She was going absolutely nowhere and Joel Schumacher threw her in this thing and people liked her. And then the next thing you know, Steven Stoderberg throws her in sex lives and videotape and she's a, you know, and then she becomes an international star, you know, but it was because of this that you know anybody even looked at her for anything else because she was a little bit older. I mean, and she's a different thing from Hollywood. She's tall. She's dark haired. She doesn't have the standard look. She's kind of the girl next door, but she's also sort of a model. It's interesting. Right. And you watch him kind of chase after this dream of this girl that he had, you know, one interaction with as a freshman, she smiled at him at a you know fountain or whatever. And I don't, there's something about like Kirby, you just sort of want to root for him because you see this guy, he has like his own little comedy movie. It's all like almost like a Marx brothers movie in the middle of this Coke infused eighties movie, because he, <laughs> he takes a job just so he can look like he can impress her. He goes, he gets her hospital schedule and he invites her to parties that she doesn't show up to. He even chases her down at a snow lodge with like her boyfriend who by the way the nicest guy in the world is dale's boyfriend in this he's he's helping the guy get the car started he's helping him leave and not like shoving him out the door and he still plants one on her and you kind of leave with this moment of like maybe she's interested maybe she's not he don't know but he got to you know go on his quest and 
Kirby's kind of the guy I think you're supposed to root for because he's also the one that's not totally corrupted by the sheen of the eighties. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I can get that. But on the flip side, the one that I just think that there's no way you could ever like root for him besides, you know, Judd Nelson's character is Billy uh, with who played, you know, is played by Rob Lowe. Yeah. I mean, the opening scene that we have here is that he had got into a car accident while drunk driving. And just the way it's played off, it's just kind of played off like, ah, it's just, it's Billy being Billy and he's being taken away by the cops, but we'll bail him out in the morning. He'll just sleep it off and everything like that. And it's just like such a strange way to start a movie, especially with these characters, like, you know, something that's horrific. I mean, I'm in the traffic industry with my career and stuff and I got to deal with drunk driving stuff all the time. And like, I know how serious it is. And like seeing like just it kind of played up i wouldn't say for laughs but just kind of like eh, that's just who we are and stuff it's just like well it goes back to just the i don't like any of you guys we should say too what billy is doing he is driving wendy in her brand new car that her father got her for graduation right he's driving her while like they're out partying while his wife is home with his young daughter and he's out with this other girl that he's like kind of friends with. They sort of dated, but they never really hooked up. You know, that's what you learn about Wendy is that she's the total innocent in this. She has the the total idealistic career of working at the soup kitchen and Department of Human Services, all that stuff. She's a virgin up until the very end of the movie. You know, I mean, that's, you know, she's the other one that has kind of the innocence sheen to her. And Billy is just like your wild friend. I'm going to tell you the thing I didn't realize, though. And because I, again, I, I had such vague memories of this movie, the haircut and the earring action on Rob Lowe, Joel Schumacher pulled that right back out for his next movie, Lost Boys. That's Jason Patrick again. Like I had never realized that he just dressed Jason Patrick up to look like Billy from St. Elmo's Fire, but he did. And it's almost the same character, except without the hedonism and the drinking. Yeah, and at least, you know, made sense of why he was wearing sunglasses all the time and the Lost Boys were in this movie. It's just like, dude, it's 11 o'clock at a bar inside. Take the damn sunglasses off. You're not cool, man. It's yeah. just like, just want to slap those off. I mean, I think they made a song about that, too. So, yeah, well, you know, and that's the thing you, when you, when you get to Billy or whatever here, he is the one that's still the party guy from college. And you do get one scene with him where he, he's talking to one of his old college buddies and he's like, hey, man, I'll, you know, I'll come back to work at the school. I want to work on campus, you know, whatever. And the guy's like, yeah, man, you're older. You can score us good drugs. And he kind of just look on his face like, holy cow, that's all I'm really good for. And then him and his wife have this talk on the, the park bench, which I call like the ultimate breakup of convenience uh, in the plot summary there, because she's like, you know, my ex-boyfriend still wants to marry me and he'll take care of the daughter better than you. And, you know, maybe we should just go ahead and get this annulled. And he's like, no, don't give up on me. And so you see Billy as this guy who's trying to like, follow through on what he feels like his responsibilities are, but he really doesn't want to be in that life. He doesn't want to be that, that guy. He's not ready for it. And maybe he'll never be ready for it is the other thing. And you see him come to that realization that he gets out of it. Scott free. I mean, almost amazingly, uh, which is the the dumb part of the movie is he never has to pay for any of his, his mistakes. He gets fired a lot, but he doesn't care. I mean, he ends up getting a job at a gas station and he apparently can hold that down. He's doing pretty good at it, but he's, I, I don't know. Like I, he's, he's so unlikable as a character, but I, I juxtapose that with Rob Lowe really is having a lot of fun playing. I mean, you can see he really went for it in this. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, he's the quintessential guy that, you know, peaked in high school or probably peaked in college in this case and everything like that. But yeah, that's the kind of the one thing that kind of really struck with me is like a lot of other movies, there would be some type of consequence for his behavior. You know, even the whole relationship with his wife and his kid, like that would have played more into like his downfall and hitting rock bottom was like, oh my God, I lost them. Where this movie just kind of played off like, oh yeah, don't give up on me. And then it's like, oh, he gave up on me. All right, well, whatever. You know what I mean? I'm just going to kind of go do my thing right now. It doesn't really seem like it affects him so much. And like I said, you know, they could have played him up a little bit more as a character that maybe was sympathetic. Like we start off in the movie and he makes a mistake and he keeps on screwing up and kind of one of those ones you kind of get behind because he keeps on screwing up, but you know, he means well, but with this, it's just kind of like, he comes off as a guy where it's like, yeah, I remember a guy like you in high school and it's like, there's a reason why you never amounted to anything because you amounted to everything <laughs> that you could in high school. And people thought it was cool back then. And it's childish now. Well, know, and it's- that's the thing that, to say with this, this is supposed to be said at George in Georgetown. Now Georgetown would let them film there. So they shot it all in Maryland, but like I could buy every one of these people went and graduated from Georgetown, Kirby, Wendy, Jules, Kevin, Alex. Sure. There's no way in the hell Billy even got in to Georgetown. And if he did, there's no way he finished a degree. Like I, I needed him to have been like, I don't know, Wendy's friend growing up. They grew up in the area together because she still lives at home. So obviously she's from the area. And like, that's how he got in with all these other friends or something like a smarter story would have said he was the townie that they all kind of befriended and hung out with, but he wasn't in the same like circle as them and things like that. Right. Cause there's no way that do with yeah. college. Well, it could have been that they were in the same circle in high school and they all left, but then they all came back and then like, you know, he was just there, you know what I mean? Or, you know, they could have played it up even like, you know, yeah, he used to come there for Thursday night parties all the time while he, you know, lived at home with his mom and dad, or, you know, basically what he said in this movie too, he's had like 20 different jobs was job hopping the entire time. But yeah, there's no way that, you know, I don't care how much money his parents had. There's no way he got into college, let alone finished it, you know, unless, I don't know, unless maybe it was, communications i don't know <laughs> nah, like, well no that that's not true because we'll get to kevin in a minute let's talk about wendy though we need to talk about at least one of our female characters here real quick the the innocent idealistic has a good head on her shoulders good friend uh sweet girl that definitely wants to grow up but is still kind of constrained by the very much leave it to beaver world she's grown up in right with her father martin balsam by the way great cameo there from uh from a great actor if you've ever seen psycho folks the original psycho that is he's the private investigator arbogast so that if you recognize the face and the voice but among other things that he's done but he's her dad but she's still trying to she's trying to sort of make her own way in the world right but she's also not able to kind of cut the strings yeah she just comes off really as like the frumpy friend, you know what I mean? And I, I'm, I'm trying to say that like the most polite way, because even like, Oh, look, she's the totally movie. the duff in this movie. Let's just say, oh, it, which yeah. is, which is ridiculous because Mary Winningham is gorgeous, but yeah, she's totally the, played off as the duff in this flick. Oh, totally. I mean, they even call it out where she's working as a social worker. And then you got the, you got the single mother with like four kids all in her arms and like, Oh, well, if you know, maybe if you dressed up a little bit nicer, you'd be able to score a man or something like that. Right, like, right. It's an awful thing to say to somebody and everything. And it's just like, oh, uh, you know, but yeah, she's like, yeah, just that character where it's like, you know, she's almost kind of lost where I think she almost feels guilty for her wealth and her like, you know, status in life and everything like that. So that's why she is working, you know, as a social worker. I mean, my God, there's so many comments here about like Democrats and Republicans and everything. It's, it's, oh, it's, yeah. 
it's kind of cute considering where we are right now about how innocent that is, but it's yeah. like, it, it totally is. I mean, she comes off as, you know, one of those 80 characters, you know what I mean? That's going to be the one that's going to be like, well, I'm going to go work, you know, public servant type jobs and everything like that. And, you know, kind of socialize with the lower class people to make myself feel better in a way. But I think she's a little bit more complex than that. And she, I mean, I guess I'll even take it back a little bit more is like, I'm not necessarily rooting for her, but I don't really like adamantly dislike her. I just kind of, just she's almost like very milk toast in a way well yeah you want you want her to like grow a backbone and she kind of does sort of in the movie but not really and she's sort of inconsequential to a lot of this because she knows she doesn't need to see billy anymore but she still kind of wants to and there's a lot of of that back and forth for sure we got to flip over to demi Moore though and jules who oh god okay so so she's supposed to be the rich girl who has the big profile banker job and she's got money and she's a party girl because she's always doing cocaine which to me more herself like got sent off the set to clean up because she was so coked out of her mind in this movie and i mean yeah i mean joel schumacher was like you can't be that messed up so when she came back she had a pretty good idea of how to play somebody with a cocaine addiction and she but she's also somebody you can tell it's all flash there's no substance to it I mean, look at the way she lives she's got billy idol painted on her friggin' wall and you know way above i i, I did love that do. though i did love that yeah. the way they got the little neon accent and his earring and stuff like that i'm like oh how and like it's deliciously 80s you know what i mean it's just like it is it, it, the, it is. The thing about Jules, though, is you, you see this and you see her, and this is this is credit to Demi Moore and and her ability as a performer. Is you can tell this is all a front. Like she is so hurting inside, and like even two of her friends try to intervene on her, and it never works until like she hits rock bottom at the end. But she she has she has all this need to sort of put up this big front because as she'll reveal later, like her father absolutely hates her or at least she thinks he does. And she is craving that attention. So she goes out of her way and throws herself at every man she can. Right. Because when we see her with like a half a dozen men in this movie, because she's seeking that validation. Oh, totally. And I think, again, we all know, I mean, that's the one thing I guess I'll give credit for this movie with is we all kind of know people like this throughout our lives. And she is very much the vapid person that we've all somewhat have, you know, come across where, they are missing something and either they're filling it with relationships or they're filling it with, you know, just objects or purchases or their lifestyle or social status. And that's, I mean, she's a mix of them both. I mean, between the guy hopping and then the lavish apartment and everything like that. I mean, the wall, I mean, it looked like a freaking, uh, I got what, what, what's that? What's that makeup company? Um, uh, Mary Kay, you know, yeah. I mean? like, like a yeah. Mary Kay apartment with the pink and, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, her character, like, she, she's one that you would walk away from and just be like, yeah, she's, she has no soul. You know what I mean? She's empty inside. There's nothing there with her. And, like, she plays it well. I mean, good for her and everything like that. I don't know, really know much about Demi Moore as a person or anything like that, besides the fact she was married to Bruce Willis and just a couple other movies that she's been in. But, yeah, it's just, well, again, one of these characters where it's like, you kind of hope that she grows up and everything like that. But I just, I guess I don't understand the entire cry for help suicide attempt at the end i mean as we saw talked about the plot summary is they discover that you know she's losing everything to bankruptcy and you know they're coming there and take all her stuff and she's got this big empty apartment now and she's trying to kill herself through exposure in her apartment i mean it's just it's a very very weird scene at the end of this movie and I, I was laughing at just yeah, how. yeah i'm like that that would have played so much better if she was on top of the roof 
you know, yeah, and it, it also would so call scary. back to a, to a scene earlier where Billy and Wendy had this conversation on her roof, you know, like it would be much better if she was like, they thought she was going to jump or something like that. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of any of that, but the way this movie plays it is like, it's the lamest attempt that I've ever seen. It's really bad. And it is. And then their reactions are even worse because mm-hmm. what we have is the climactic scene is them trying to save her and they're banging on the door. And it's like, you could totally knock that door off the hinges. Like that's not a very, like you, you could do that with two, with you got two guys right there. It's like, they both could just run into the same time and knock it down. But the whole thing is like, we got to go to the fire escape. So they go and they pull down the ladder. And of course, you know, we got Judd Nelson there and, you know, Andrew McCarthy and, um, you know, Emilio Estevez. And they go up to, they go up there. And of course there's bars on the window and everything. And just, it just so happens that Rob Lowe's character works right down the street and he's at the gas station and he pulls up in the van and they're able to, you know, get a torch out and they're going to, and they, and they know how to use an acetylene torch. So I guess right? so much of yuppies. I mean, that's, <laughs> I know how to use one. I don't know if you know how to use one, but it is a very specific skill to know how to be able to adjust the gas and know exactly how to cut and when to hit the oxygen on it, to be able to burn through it. And yet Andrew McCarthy's sitting there like torching it out on the patio. And it's just so ridiculous. It's like, you know what? Call 911 then. You know what I mean? Right. They got neighbors there. You got the guy across the street who they had felt like Andy McCarthy was, you know, maybe homosexual and they were going to you know she was going to hook him up with it because she's just that type of person. And it's like, go knock on the door and go. And she's having a little bit of a meltdown. I think we need to call the cops so we can get in here or call the landlord or something like that. It's just, yeah, it's so melodramatic that you just can't help but laugh at it. I mean, I was it, like, I said, it I was is sitting it, there laughing. Yeah, it, it is ridiculous. And I think it's because it's trying to build this big emotional climax because of everything else that's happened. And it really centers around the last three characters we need to talk about, Kevin, Leslie, and Alec. Now, I, Kevin, I can relate to, not because of personal reasons, but I went to college, studied journalism, all that kind of stuff. And one of the people I worked with on the paper was very much the same kind of cynical outlook on life at 22 that I'm like, man, you can't be that jaded yet. You haven't done anything (laughs) outside of Lauderdale County. Like, how are you that pissed off at the world? But he's already like given up and he's doing this whole dead poet thing, you know, and he's too cool for the room. And one night of uh, rampant sex with Ali Sheedy is all it gets for him to get not just a story published in the Washington Post, but a front pager, man. I mean, wow, that's uh, that's impressive. Um, Kevin is supposed to be the eyes and the mouth of the audience to lead us through all this stuff, because he's the one that's really taking us piece by piece through everybody's life. Because he's the observer, like you said, that stand in the back, watch it. But there's just something about Andrew McCarthy and the way he emotes through opening his eyes really wide or whatever. I don't know. It's something about it just doesn't work for me, man. And it's nothing against the guy personally. I've just never liked him in anything I've ever seen him in. Not even... uh... What's the movie with the dead guy? Weekend at Bernie's? No. no. Jonathan Silverman's the only reason to ever even bother with that first one. (laughs) 
he did the, honestly it's the only movies i know him from now is this one in weekend at bernie's and i was always like wasn't he the guy in gremlins but no that was a different guy that was the uh, guy for it was zach uh zach galifan or something like that yeah no 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 the uh, bank guy who was also in um beverly hills cop and everything like oh that. you said what you did about judge reinhold yeah yeah, yeah no, I, no. I i got those guys kind of confused they kind of got somewhat of a similar well, look. judge reinhold's about a foot taller and that's how you can tell the difference between the two of them yeah it's just i i kept on thinking i'm like was he in gremlins and then i'm like no that was the guy from fast time at Richmond high who was in the uh you know in the bathrooms so. yeah no, it, yeah if, if this was three years earlier phoebe cates would have been probably the demi Moore role or the leslie role the ali sheedy role because they kind of look the same yeah but yeah i mean with this character too i mean like i said you know you kind of kind of nailed it where it's like he's the one that's kind of he's the one that's kind of hopping between stories and everything like that and it's kind of the audience's eyes and stuff like that but it is i mean he's kind of a kind of a wet fart of a character you know what i mean it's kind of mm-hmm. like you know we talk about like how you know, the one, the, the social worker, like she didn't have a backbone. It's like, he doesn't have a backbone much either. And like, there's so many like weird scenes with him too. Like there's one with him and Demi Moore where she's all like, you know, you, you never made a move on me ever and stuff. And then like, he's like, I got to leave the apartment and stuff. And she's like, Oh, I think you're gay. And I'm just like, this is really weird. (laughs) I'm just like, I, yeah, I, I don't get this. Like, what is the point of the scene where it's like, she's like, I'm like, was she trying to come on to him, trying to figure but, it out? Yeah, no, she she was definitely trying to come on to him to test her theory. But then she had the guy outside, though, yeah, that no, was no. Like waiting for she him. She was testing her theory because that's Jules. She's a networker. She's a mover. She's a shaker. She does all that kind of stuff, right? Because she's hiding her own pain through this bit. What this is supposed to reveal for us is when Kevin later reveals that the only girl he ever cared a torch for was Leslie, who just happened to be always dating his best friend, Alec. And then, the, you know, they hook up. And the, uh, that's what you're supposed to be like. Oh, he finally got with the girl. And then, of course, at the end, Ali Sheedy, thank goodness, t- says, guys, I love you both, but I'm not dating either one of you ever again because you're psychos. Goodbye. You know, which is good for her. But yeah, I, th- that's what his whole arc is supposed to be. But again, because McCarthy plays it so dead eyed that it's just not there's just nothing there. And then he, Nick, what are all those weird conversations he has with the hooker who ended up starring on 227 and a bunch of Mandia movies later in life? Like, what is that about? I have no idea. I mean, that that was such a bizarre thing. I don't know if you've ever seen the 40-year-old version, but it reminded yes. me when Steve Carell went to the party <laughs> in the room. I'm like, again, I'm not trying to be like that person, but I'm like, is this going to like turn really, really weird where it's like, you know, he's going to pick up a transvestite hooker or something like something? that? Something, yeah. It, just, it came off so bizarre and like them it- out on the street sharing like a bottle of cheap scotch in a paper bag. Again, there's that. That's why I'm sitting here. I'm just like, I don't know what this movie's about because there's all these scenes that could be part of a different movie that could somehow like work into something, but they're just so abstract. And I'm just like, is the entire point of this to be like, hey, we're just going to live three weeks in the lives of these yuppies and kind of see how it is? And maybe that's the whole point of the movie. But at the same time, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, but you got to like sit there and give me something to hold on to. Got to give me somebody to root for here. And I'm like, the thing, the thing about that hooker scene is I did read this, that she, apparently that was a conversation Jill Schumacher had overheard in a limo once between a hooker and somebody. I'm like, whatever. I mean, I don't know how it got into this movie, what it's supposed to do. But again, it's supposed to endear you to Kevin and his plight for Leslie, because you are really supposed to feel for Leslie, because she clearly cares a lot about Alec, even though he is a total douchebag. I mean, he switches political parties so he can go to work for like a higher ranking. Yeah, I think he goes from a congressman to a senator or a representative to a senator or something. He's like, well, you're a Republican now? He's like, yeah, I'm moving up. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's that's a statement on the 80s, maybe whatever. But she is loyal to him to a point. But she and, and she says it a couple of times in this movie about I would need something for myself before I can share anything with you. And I so wish they had given her what is all over the Internet about she's this architect student or whatever. I'm like, there's you. she talks about a drafting table or something about and but it's going to put coffee on it. I think later I remember that drop line. But I, you would know nothing about what she does for a living or what she wants to do for a living or any of that kind of stuff and it's actually like a there's an arc there to tell because if you start as an architect like when you graduate you're not just being an architect like you have to work as an architect's apprentice for years before you can get your own stamp and your own you know license and all that kind of stuff it's a way of working your way up and if if the story here is that as 20 somethings you're supposed to have life or you think you're supposed to have life all figured out but you're still just a kid and you really the only thing difference is you're just a few years older now and all the stuff that you used to do in college for fun you can now do legally and it's not as fun anymore and so you have to learn how to take responsibility and wait your turn and work your way up the ladder and the only person that works their way up any ladder at all is the biggest douchebag in the movie and that's Alec Judd Nelson cuz he actually makes smart career moves throughout okay. this movie okay. i gotta i gotta bring this up i gotta bring this up so there's a scene with andrew mccarthy and ali sheedy and they're the they're in this like total quintessential 80s apartment i mean my god mm-hmm. there's like the like clear crystal square walls and stuff stuff you typically see at like the ymca locker room or something like that and yeah. he comes judd nelson comes home and ali sheedy and him are cooking dinner and he presents her with lingerie in front of his friend. And I'm just like, that is really awkward. Yeah. And then they don't have sex in the back while friend is supposed to be cooking the vegetables. Yeah. It was well, like, not no. only that, but he admits to his friend why his girlfriend is trying on this like sexy lingerie in the back room that he bought this after having sex with the lingerie sales rep. Who was back. modeling it at the time. Let's just, like break that down in a lot of ways. This was on another woman's body while you were having sex with her and you just gave it to your girlfriend. Yeah. And you're <sighs> telling your friend this who's friends with her, right? Really good friends. Like obviously they're close if they're over there and they're cooking together and stuff. This is like a little bit more than just being like, Hey, you're the friend of my friends. You know, you're significant other of my friend and therefore you're kind of friends yourself. You know what I mean? It's like, they obviously have a close relationship and it's like, you're going there and the way he even brings it up, it's like he's bragging, but he's not. And he's, he's kind of confessing halfway to it. He's like, if she would just marry me, I would stop screwing all these other hoes on the side. And even says How does that, that later. Make sense? How does that make sense? I don't, <laughs> there is no logic there that it's like, I mean, how this guy have like a drug addiction or, a, you know, make it just. No, no I, this is something. what it is, though. This is what it is. This is his addiction is status. And he knows I need to be married to move up in the party, whichever one I'm working for at the time and status. And, you know, if I screw around on the side, well, that's Washington and everybody does it, which I mean, that had been the the rage about D.C. ever since Kennedy. You know, well, it was all maybe- the exploits of the politicians. And so it's supposed to be a spoof on that. The problem is, is you just hate this guy. So it only makes you hate him more. And I, you know me, I'm always trying to rewrite movies and everything like that. But I'm like, why not have him just be at his job? And this is like a secretary there. Right. And it's like, oh, hey, can you run down to freaking Neiman Marcus? I got a package there. It needs to get picked up. And then she comes back and she's like, opens it up in front of him and that's how it transpires into him having an affair with like the secretary and it's like 
he brings it up like in a way, like I feel guilty about it, but that's what guys do in my position. You know what I mean? Right. Right. We're not held down. Yeah. We might be married and they go through the whole thing of going to parties and socializing and stuff like that. But I'm part of this culture and this is what we do. And like, he's trying to defend it in the way that, like I said, he's bringing it up. Like I keep hurting, keep hurting her because she's not doing this. It's, doesn't make sense at all and just like that whole scene is just so like i don't know that's not even the worst thing that Nick when when he's at the party that kirby has thrown at his new uh boss's uh mansion to try to impress the doctor that doesn't love him uh, he does this whole like on the saturday and through whatever she will now be my wife and she just looks at him horrified like i didn't agree to that exactly and not five minutes later he's punching out andrew mccarthy because he thinks he you know he got told because she she sprung a trap on him good for leslie for going like you need to tell me about all your cheating and he's like who told did he tell and then she's like nobody told but you just told on yourself you know and, what movie uh, does it a lot better is coming to america is yes. you know what i mean like yes. it's like she's marrying to the guy who's a douchebag and he, he, you know, he's making her marry him because of the father and everything like that. But she just can't stand him because while he's a decent boyfriend, he's not marriage material. And she does not want to be, a, she does not want that to be her she life. She does not want to be Mrs. Soul Glow in that movie, as it were. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, like I said, like none of these people are people. Like I just, like I said, I watched that scene or the scene you just described and I'm like, this is not how people act. Not even like no. terrible people. Well, like, here's the thing. Jo- Joel Schumacher apparently thought he could do the same idea as breakfast club. Now, he hasn't copped any of this. I'm just telling you, he thought, okay, the breakfast club is just about these random people stuck in a room together and they find ways to relate to each other. We'll just do the same thing, but we'll do it about coming of age into your twenties. The problem with that is there's no unifying factor to all of them in the breakfast club. The unifying factor is they're all in high school and they're all in detention and they're all into the thumb of this asshole assistant principal right this movie they all have different jobs they all live in different places even though they kind of just bop between each other's places and at least four of these people are total degenerates and don't need to be a part of your life anymore and so there's nothing to unify any of these people together other than we're told that they're all friends yeah, there's no antagonists in this movie or anything like it's that. Like, there's it's no because like, they're all common... antagonists, Nick. Yeah, but even like I'm like looking like, like Andrew McCarthy's character. Like, you know, we had that whole scene with the hooker on the street, and I'm like, let's take that away and let's actually like have him have like a parent or something like that that he mm-hmm. talks to, like a father who maybe lost his mother or something or lost his wife, and he goes to his dad for someone just to talk to, and he could bring up like. I'm in love with her or something like that. And at least give the movie like something where it's like the whole plot here is him wanting to get with her, but she's with this asshole guy. And you know what I mean? And you can write the whole movie about that. Yeah. You got your side characters and stuff, but at least make that like the main cross. And then you could totally swing it in the end, just like they did where it's like, I don't want to be with either of you. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you guys are both bad, but at least that way it's kind of like you see him grow and he realizes like, Hey, I can't sit there and focus my entire life on trying to catch the heart of this woman. I got to go live my life. The problem is you got a hundred minute movie here. And what you're talking about works much better. If you have four seasons of a television show, like Melrose place or something like that, this <laughs> is the same I'm Aaron Stelling as, right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, this is like the same vein of all of that stuff, but you know why, if that works at all and it did work, it was successful. I mean, I wasn't a fan, but all that stuff, one tree Hill, all of those shows all work because you have time 
to watch people roll through the drama of their lives. You're not trying to compress it into a hundred minutes and you just throw people into these people's lives days after graduation or weeks after graduation. And I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Like you don't have enough setup is what I'm saying. And you don't get enough time to unravel everybody's backstory to make any of the drama pay off. That's why the whole Jules suicide thing at the end, it seems so ridiculous and funny and comes off as funny rather than being harrowing or scary or anything like that or dramatic because it's just out of frigging nowhere, you know? And if, if that had been built up over like three seasons of watching her sort of spiral out of control, you'd have bought it, right? It'd been a great two part episode. Right. But yeah. as five minutes in a movie, it's ridiculous because you get the most screwed up one turns out to be the one that can actually talk sense into her. Cause yeah. he's, I- he's had a rough life, which by the way, he, he does have a great line where he talks about the whole bit about self-made drama, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, these two people are like the king and queen of self-made drama. And I think we all knew people like that growing up. Oh, I, I know people like that right now. I mean, it's, it's some people never grow out of that, but yeah, totally. It's like you are your own worst enemy and you need to realize that, that you sabotage yourself. And that's why all these problems you're seeing right here is not because of anybody else. It's because of you and how you act and how you have you know, no realization of reality or stuff. But, you know, like even like kind of talking about all this, everything. And it's like this movie would have been, I think, much better if they would have honed in the script and they would have cut out two characters. If you cut out Emilio Estevez's character and then uh, the social worker one, yeah. because really, like I said, there's there's really nothing there. You cut them out and you make it kind of like a weird like love triangle movie where maybe it's like Demi Moore likes Andrew McCarthy's character, but he likes Ali Sheedy. And then you got Judd Nelson as kind of the douchebag asshole guy. I think you would add a much more tighter script and you would add a much more like through line with the movie where it would have made sense. And again, I get it like, Oh, this is going to be a life of like six yuppies and everything like that. But again, you got to give either give these people a backstory or like you said, with the breakfast club, you got to give them like an antagonist or a common cause here to get them through the movie to either bring them together or break them apart, then bring them back together. And yeah, it's just like, even the end of the movie though, it's like Andrew McCarthy sleeps with Ali Sheedy's character. And yet at the end of the movie, they're all like good. And I'm just thinking, I'm like, as much as like Judd Nelson's a dick, it's like his friend slept with his girl. I don't care how close your ties were in high school or college. That's over with. You're not having brunch the next day. Yeah, they, they play that off. And the only character that really has any payoff that's satisfying all is the Ali Sheedy Leslie character. She's able to tell both of these guys, look, Alec, I can't be married to you because I'm not just going to be your arm candy on the Christmas card for the political rally or whatever. And Kevin, mm, that was nice revenge sex, but it's not love. It's not the same thing. And I care about both of you. You're my friends, but we all need to grow up. And she's the only one that has any agency that takes on her own life at the end of this thing. And she's the one that's trying to help Jules all along. I mean, she tries to intervene on her. She moves in with her. She's trying to take care of her all the time. And so she's the only one that's got like anything going for her at all. Mm -hmm. totally yeah i mean and that's the whole thing is i mean i guess it's good to see like one character kind of have somewhat of an arc and somewhat grow at the end because like the other characters do not like i do not see changes in any of them besides like oh like amelia Estevez is not gonna hook up with andy mcdowell she's gonna go have an affair with bill murray later in uh, a small town (laughs) in uh you know for groundhog day yeah (laughs) but um 
Yeah. She's going to go be a news producer. She's going to give that great career as a doctor to be a news producer. No, no. (laughs) Go the other way around. (laughs) But it's like everything they tell us about Judd Nelson's character is like, he's a dick. Like, just no other way to put it. He's just a dick. And just like I said, the end of the movie, like, I get what they're trying to do here where it's like, all right, we're not going to go back to here. We've grown out of this and everything like this. But it's like, did you, did you really? Because like, I haven't seen any changes in any of you guys, you know, besides Rob Lowe going, trying to go, you know, getting on a bus and, you know, Ali Sheedy being like, I don't need a guy and, you know, good for her and all that stuff. But the rest of them, it's like, I guess they just realize that they want to go have brunch at another place. I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah. Jules is talking about, I got to go find a new job tomorrow. I'm like, "Uh, your references are probably not grand, but okay. And so she, you know, she's trying to get her life together and you've got Leslie taking on her own life. Kevin's actually got a, got the most stable job. I mean, he and Alec actually have careers and that they could go back to and do things. Everybody else here, I mean, Kirby's like, yeah, I got to get another you know, waitressing job or whatever so that I can go in, back to law school or medical school or whichever one I decide I want to go to this week. And yeah, he has nothing to do. He's just a kid still. Wendy's in no different than where she was. She's not going to marry the guy her dad set her up with. Uh, and so she's going to keep her idealistic job going. I mean, there's nobody changes it really, except for Leslie at the end of this. And that's the thing about this movie is it wants you to go like, and I wonder what happened to these people 20 years later. But the problem is, Nick, I don't care. I don't care what happened to any of these people. I don't want to know. I don't want to see him ever again. I bet three of them are dead. Totally. And, you know, like kind of like watching this movie, there's a movie that did this a lot better and it came out like five years or two years earlier than this. Have you ever seen the big chill? Oh yes. Completely, completely much better story. Yeah. It's better actors too. Oh, totally. And if you're like, you're going to tell us a story about people like who are friends in college who are going to go live their lives and everything like that. That's how you do it. You do it like the big chill because you actually have, like you said, characters you like, arcs and people changing and people being able to reminisce and kind of bring it into like what's going on now. Like that was a movie done right. Where it is kind of the same style of substance, you know, same style of plot where this movie, like I said, it's just like, it's, I, I still don't even know what it's about. <laughs> so. Well, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to get final thoughts, recommendations and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for St. Elmo's fire, Nick? It's a small popcorn. It's, it's not a good movie. I'm not going to sit there and say it's the worst movie we've ever reviewed, but it's, it's pretty close. I mean, when you look at just, you know, even like some bad movies like Blair Witch two or something like that, at least I came away going, I understood what the movie was about. It was stupid. It was awful. It was totally just dumb. This movie I walked away from, and I've said it probably a thousand times in here. I don't even know what I watched. It's one of these ones where it's, pointless none of the people i like i mean kind of like blair witch too but i can't you know i'm dropping a pretty deep uh cut right there since that was the second movie you ever reviewed but um yeah it's just it's a bad bad movie the best thing about it is that freaking song and like i said that's a guilty pleasure and when the guilty pleasure song for the movie is the best thing about it i think that's all you need to say you know, I often will say medium popcorn is reserved for those movies that had potential and they just didn't live up to it. And the way I've talked about this movie, you might think that I was going to do that. 
Except for the fact that I don't think this ever had potential to begin with because it's trying to be the big chill meets the breakfast club. And that's just a stupid idea to begin with. And moreover, it's badly executed. Now it looks good. Shoemaker directs stuff that looks decent. He hasn't really got his whole flair on this movie the way that he would in something like lost boys or flatliners or, you know, things later on, you get in the Batman and Robin, all that kind of stuff that he did, or even something like a time to kill, which is much more of a dramatic movie. He put a, a touch on that, that made that movie work. This, one does not and as fun as it is to see all these actors that now you see mostly on television or doing interesting you know side roles here and there as they're all in their 50s and such now it's fun to go back and watch them in their 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 heyday their moment boy you can see why people hated this movie you can see why people hated the brat pack like they they are awful and they represent every negative bad stereotype of the 1980s that you can represent. So it's small popcorn all the way, man. I'm with you there. It's not the worst thing we've ever viewed. It's not even close, but it's still really bad. Uh, it is It is only fun, I would say, if you can get a group of people together who are old enough to have remembered this or maybe like me have siblings that were you know, in this age group and kind of you kind of remember the time. If you took this to like a group of 20-year-olds right now and showed it to them, they wouldn't have any clue what any of this was and they would walk away like you did going, what was the point of that? This is so bad. And I mean, we're talking about a group of people that watch stuff like Riverdale, which you talk about some overwrought drama. I mean, that show is off the rails, but at least there's something to follow there. It, this movie, there's nothing and there's nothing left to, to pull out of it. So yeah, small popcorn, uh, not the worst thing we've ever done, but it's pretty bad for sure. But it's a fun way to kind of, as we do the, the rear end stuff here, Nick, we're beginning December. We're about to drop a major surprise on everybody. December the 14th, we have, we are pulling back the curtain. We are dropping six episodes at once. The entire paranormal activity series coming to you. You, me and Ron over a series of years have reviewed those movies, then sitting on them for a long time. It's finally time to put them all out at once. Cause we finished up the ghost dimension. We recorded that earlier this year. Putting them all out once because, hey, it's the holidays. Hopefully, you're getting to travel, spend some time with family, or at least be off of work. You want some stuff to do. And look, football season's kind of wackadoo, especially if you're, you're an NFC East fan. You got nothing to watch. So here's six reviews that are sure to make you laugh. Over six hours of content coming to you all next week. We're going to drop all of them. And then we got a real special surprise for the year ender with our friends from Tis the podcast. Uh, Ron and I uh, roped them together, roped uh, Anthony and Tom uh, out of that show to do new year's evil. So a lot of fun stuff coming up here in December. Sounds like a lot of fun, Jay. Oh yeah. Especially it's gotta be a- the, uh, <laughs> especially the uh, paranormal activity, which uh, yeah, I think is like what you said, like five, six years in the making. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. That, that one took us a while to finally get done, but we, we did it. We put a big bow on it and that's going to be your big Christmas present from us here at film strip. Folks, you can follow the podcast on our social media at film strip pod, Instagram, uh, Twitter. That's how you find us on Facebook. Look for facebook.com slash film strip pod. Some cool stuff on the film strip pod page. Now we're starting to do once a month, Facebook film strip, live stuff where we're going to bring on different people, do interviews or just sit around and talk uh, amongst ourselves and some of our other pod friends about movies and TV shows, stuff like that. We're kind of taking the old film strip sessions show. If you've heard some of those episodes where it's just our general topics, turning that into a Facebook live thing. So do you like the page? Let us uh, know what you think. We appreciate your support. So until next time for Nick, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to film strip. Thank you for listening to film strip. 
You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.